Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. When he launched Conservation International in 1987, Peter Sagerman recognized the conservation movement had yet to genuinely consider people as an integral part of ecosystems. Along with his team, their thinking was on jobs and health and the health of the family, the health of the community, and how these are all impacted by the conservation of nature. The seemingly intuitive approach was novel, innovative. They went further to generate science and ideas that were pragmatic, applicable, and inclusive, and and utilizing these to guide decision-making. Through hard work, passion, compassion, and an openness to learning from mistakes, a strong, highly accomplished organization flourished and continues to today. After 30 years as the CEO, he recently stepped down from that role and handed the reins to a new generation of leaders, remaining on as chairman and exploring new endeavors. Producer Matt Podolsky spoke with Peter about his story, the challenges of being an innovative leader, and the phenomenal work of CI during his tenure and moving forward. My name is Peter Sullivan. I am the chairman and founder of Conservation International, and I am the chief executive officer as of July 1st of 2018 of a new organization called Nia Tero, which means Our Earth in a language known as Esperanto. Um, And uh, I have worked in conservation uh, for most of my life. Started young, started working on studies of grizzly bears and when I was in my late teens and 50 years later, I'm I'm still doing it. Excellent. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where I want to start off here is, you know, where this this interest in conservation came from. I mean, can we maybe we can trace that interest back to sort of the earliest possible moment? I mean, maybe you have like a, a childhood memory of, you know, something what spurred that interest in conservation? Into it? I, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I was in the in Jackson Hole, Wyoming uh, with many of my cousins, actually all of my cousins, there are about, I think, 15 or 16 of us, with my grandmother, and it was a gathering that she pulled together every few years uh, because we were all first-generation refugees from Nazi Germany, and she wanted to keep us together as a family, and we were in Wyoming, and when my grandmother and the cousins went off to do different things, I just uh, got a job working as a uh, a lowly hand for a, a fellow that was doing irrigation and ranch management in the valley and that was it i just felt like i had found heaven and uh, and uh, every year i would go back and work on this ranch and eventually i was introduced to two young two brothers Frank and John Craighead, who were working on grizzly bear studies uh, in the Yellowstone region, and I, I bothered them so much that they finally agreed to give me a job as an intern working for them, and and uh, uh, that kind of led me into understanding that 
that if you're interested in wildlife, you got to be interested in land, and you have to be interested in the cultures and the people that uh, take care of territories and the earth. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's a, it's really interesting actually to hear uh, that there is that connection with with the Craigheads who are very well known uh, in, in the world of conservation, um, and you know, sort of like I mean, some of the best known early like wildlife biologists. Um, but you know, I I before I delve into that, I mean, I, I, I want to take a, a, a little bit of a step back. Um, so I mean, you mentioned that you're. Uh, First generation, um, so uh, first generation American. Um, your parents uh, came over from Nazi Germany. I mean, let's just spend a moment uh, talking a little bit about um, you know that family history. Um, I mean, what was that like for you growing up? I mean, that must have had an influence in you know your interests and in, and uh, uh, these these early uh, pursuits into conservation. When you are first generation and your parents are speaking in German at home, um, you know, it's it was, uh, you know, you're shaped by your parents' loves. I guess everybody is. Um, my mother and father loved the outdoors. They loved mountains. Um, and so... Um, when they brought me out to Wyoming for the first time when I was 12 or 13 years old, um, I think the whole family was struck by the beauty of the Tetons. And, and uh, we became good family friends with a Danish family that actually had helped uh, the Jews escape from Nazi Germany and uh, were part of the resistance during World War II to the occupation of, of Europe. And, uh, and so there was a sense of home and a sense of, of uh, finding friends uh, in those mountains. Uh, and we spent a lot of time hiking. And, and for me, it was such a, a extraordinary experience. You know, I had, my parents had settled in New Jersey. And uh, so I was, you know, I grew up you know, in an urban area. Um, I actually ended up going to Rutgers University and then to Yale University to study forestry. Uh, but but being out in Wyoming was, you know, hit me like it's probably hit so many people. It's as if you you find your place, you feel comfortable, you 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 enjoy the tranquility, and and you get a sense of uh, of the majesty of the mountains and seeing big game for the first time and watching herd of elk and and tracking grizzly bear and and watching the beaver and the otter and and uh, and just watching the bees and you know my for me it was truly like the place that felt right it was it was somehow fulfilled my my search image of what i needed and uh, and so uh, i kept on coming back even after my parents stopped going back there. And then eventually my folks decided to buy a place and they bought a little piece of land in the mid sixties that actually turned out to be an inholding in Grand Teton National Park. And it was a one room log cabin um, that you had to ski in and out of. And, uh, and that's where I 
you know, I grew up basically and, and learned about nature and fell in love with the woods and and just became an observer and a participant in, in wild things. And that was, uh, you know, we still have that place. It's now a, a two-room log cabin, so we, we've expanded it. But uh, it's still an in-holding in, in the park, and, and it's it not only shaped my life, it's shaped my children's lives. It's cha- shaped the lives of my nieces and nephews, and and it's 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 still a place where you ski in and out of. So I just became, you know, I was I I worked for them for nothing, and and uh, they gave me great opportunities, and I got to be good friends with their kids, with with uh, the family, and and um, um, in fact, uh, Lance Craggett and I started working. That's that's Frank's son started working on uh, a project looking at birds of prey. Uh, that the Craigets had done, uh, I guess in the 50s, they had done an analysis of predator prey populations, looking at birds of prey, at raptors, back uh, on an area called Blacktail Butte, which is uh, a big butte in the uh, the eastern part of the uh, of Jackson Hole Valley. And, uh, and so they brought me on board to, to help with you know, the grunt work around that. And we spent a lot of time wandering through the forest, uh, looking for, uh, for raptor nests and, uh, and keeping track of them and measuring them and doing analysis of, of, uh, you know, birth rates, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, uh, it was pretty interesting. So that's where it started. And then it, it, it evolved into, uh, having the you know opportunity of a lifetime to go with them up to Yellowstone and, and go up to Trap Creek and start working on some of the grizzly work they were doing. And um, it was just, you know, I don't think I added any value. I did get a, a recommend, I did get a reference in one of their publications that was a big deal for a 19 year old, but, uh, but it sure added a lot of value to my life. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, what, what a fantastic opportunity. Um, really neat to hear about that connection. Um, so, I mean, Clearly, you, you had this, you know, early start uh, to your career in conservation, which involves, you know, direct involvement in, uh, you know, these, these uh, wildlife um, research projects. Um, and you mentioned that you went to school for forestry. Um, you know, what happened next? Because, I mean, as you stated uh, in your introduction, you know, you're best known for founding uh, Conservation International, right? Um, so, I mean... How did you get from this, you know, this young kid, this young aspiring wildlife biologist, um, to you know reaching this point in your career where you were ready to launch this, you know, this massive project, this this, this uh, uh, you know, unique conservation organization? What I did was I uh, I went to school and I I did study wildlife ecology uh, at Rutgers. And then I went immediately into graduate school and, uh, and studied forestry and forestry economics at Yale. Um, in actuality, I had wanted to go from Rutgers University to Montana State University to continue working on, uh, on the grizzly work. Uh, but uh, uh, what happened was that Montana State uh, rejected me from their, from 
grad school and Yale University accepted me and uh, offered me financial assistance. So I ended up at Yale um, and uh, studied forest ecology and learned about theoretical ecology and, um, you know, the economics of forests and non-timber forest values. Um, and right after I graduated from, and of course, every summer I went out to Wyoming and I continued to work, um, you know, on with with uh, with Frank on different projects and did, you know, got other odd jobs and, and, you know, learned a lot and spent a lot of time wandering through the forest, a lot of time in the mountains, a lot of time uh, fly fishing. So it was it was clear that my destiny was linked to nature. That's that's. You know, and I actually found a note I sent to my father many, you know, at that time. And I found it after my father died about, you know, four or five years ago, um, in which I wrote to him, you know, I know what I want to do with my life. I want to focus on securing land so that uh, nature survives. Um, and and that was kind of, you know, in my early 20s. And when I graduated, um, um, I ended up back in Wyoming and... I got a job offer from the Nature Conservancy. Uh, I think this was in like 1974, late 74, uh, to uh, to become their Western Regional Land Steward and to oversee the management of the Nature Conservancy preserves in the western part of the United States. And uh, it was pretty exciting for me. I had to buy a tie, I had to buy a long sleeve shirt. Uh, moved to San Francisco and started working on land conservation for the Nature Conservancy and really, you know, worked hard in figuring out how do you protect and manage the areas that they had secured uh, throughout the western states, including Alaska and Hawaii. And they had about 100 preserves. And I learned pretty quickly that, you know, at that time, the Nature Conservancy was much more interested in acquiring territories that were important to protect. Uh, than actually putting the thought into management of them. And so I was pretty much on my own and uh, found out that we needed to raise money to manage these areas and found out that I was pretty good at raising money uh, from some people to secure these beautiful places that the Nature Conservancy team had protected. You know, I learned a lot, you know, in that part of my life about, about working with teams and managing ecologically important places and I got to see you know a lot of the West and it was uh, it was a remarkable time of my life and then um, it turned out that they were looking for someone to manage not just the lands but the entire operation of the Nature Conservancy in California so they offered the job to me to become the California uh, what is it the director of the California Nature Conservancy and uh, I loved doing that too. That was doing land deals and land management and politics and fundraising, the whole blend of what the Nature Conservancy was doing. But they gave me another opportunity, which was to have a sabbatical after seven years. And, and I took that and I went down to South America. And that was a really important moment because I went down to Costa Rica and to Peru and was blown away by the ecological richness in the Southern Hemisphere. And I was blown away by the juxtaposition of the poverty of the people that were there. 
Um, and, uh, and that actually led me to apply for a position at the Nature Conservancy's fledgling international program. And uh, a friend of mine, Spencer Beebe, uh, uh, was running the Nature Conservancy's international program, just beginning to design it. And uh, Spencer didn't want to uh, live in the East and run it, and he wanted to move home to Oregon. And I was willing to move to the East. And so the Nature Conservancy gave me the opportunity to you know, build their international program. And uh, that's how I got started in international conservation. I brought with me that deep experience and conviction that conservation will not work in emerging nations if people had to choose between a job and the environment. And that the only way conservation would work is if conservation created wealth, not massive wealth, but just improved the quality of life of the people that lived in these tropical places who were living in poverty and needed opportunities and choices. And so I pushed hard on the Nature Conservancy to focus their engagement internationally on an on the intersection between job creation and conservation of nature. Um, and it was a little early for the Nature Conservancy and their evolution to accept that. And so after a tumultuous couple of months running the Nature Conservancy's international program and having moved my family back east from, from the Bay Area to, uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, the Nature Conservancy fired me and uh, and because I really felt strongly that we had to look at that intersection of economics and conservation if we were going to be successful in emerging and poor nations, uh, nations that were rich ecologically but poor economically. And that night, January 29th, 1987, the night that I was fired, uh, the 30-plus people that worked for me at the International Program of the Nature Conservancy came to my hotel room, gave me a letter saying that if we'd start a new organization based upon our idea of linking conservation and economic health of communities, um, they would join me. And so we started Conservation International in room 21 of the Tabard Inn that night in January of 1987. Wow, that is a remarkable story. That is a remarkable creation story for Conservation International. How interesting. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, I guess I wonder if, I mean, do you mind if I ask, like, more details about sort of, like, you know, that dispute that, that you had and clearly all of, you know, the, the team of employees that you were working with clearly agreed with you. Um, you know, why was the Nature Conservancy fighting you on this? I mean, what was their perspective? What did they think the best approach towards, uh, you know, international conservation programs was? Their skill was in acquiring land. Um, they had done a extraordinary job in the United States. And so, um, um, you know, that's what they understood and that's what they knew. They did not have, you know, deep experience, nor did I, for that matter, in 
in economic development and and they wanted to stick to what they could do really well and i think that you know that was you know that was their frame of reference you know my frame of reference as i began to work more and more overseas was that uh, we had to provide a choice i mean if we did not give communities a way to improve their their quality of their life they would make a different type of choice they would feel guilty about destroying something but they would continue to to lock um, and uh, and that was uh, um, um, that was what you know we had to uh, we had to address we had to find different approaches but the nature conservancy really was not ready for that um, and um, you know it's very possible that that the way I communicated with them was not as skilled as it should have been, um, but I tried my best, you know, and so they made a very clear decision that they were going to continue to work internationally, but they were going to do it in the way they worked in the United States. And, and that was the moment of separation. It was, it was really challenging. I mean, it was challenging. It was very moment in history when two movies came out that really were inspiring to me. One was The Mission, which was uh, about the way the Jesuits and the Catholics, you know, basically split up the Americas. Uh, and the other was a movie called Field of Dreams. And it was this idea of you build it, they will come. And I really felt that if we could design, we had the chance to design a different approach to conservation. And so um, it turned out, obviously it's turned out to be, you know, fortuitous. It, it, the Conservancy is a great organization doing wonderful things. Uh, they have clearly evolved and, you know, they, I, I truly applaud them for the wonderful accomplishments they have. And CI has uh, established itself as a very innovative, uh, agile, science-driven organization that is extraordinarily sensitive to indigenous peoples and local culture and communities. Um, and we have achieved wonderful things as well. So, so uh, uh, you know, now is, things are good. It was a little bit rough in the beginning. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a remarkable story, right? Because, um, I mean, it, it seems to me I mean, that, that strikes me as a very important turning point in conservation beyond just the perspective of the Nature Conservancy at that moment. Obviously, there was this disagreement, like, you know, you ha had this an, an idea for a very different approach than what the Nature Conservancy uh, was, you know, comfortable implementing. What about the conservation world in general, big picture? At this, this moment in 1987, um, when you're putting forth these ideas um, about paying attention to economics and paying attention to local communities um, as like a, a, a critical step in solving a conservation issue, was this controversial beyond just this like disagreement with the Nature Conservancy? What other organizations were thinking about, um, I don't have any idea. You have to remember, you know, in 1987, the conservation movement was much smaller than it is today. Uh, there was a Sierra Club and the Audubon Society, uh, Friends of the Earth, all with very strong NRDC, all with very strong niches and, and, and important roles. There was very little development of conservation efforts internationally. And, 
there was not much development of this idea that the common pixel of the earth then and now is the community and a community is a collection of, of, of families and and the most important driver of every family my family your family every family is how do I take care of my kids and and what struck me is fundamental fundamental was that if conservation did not help a family take care of their children it would not succeed in growing from the grassroots into larger movements and we had to address that and uh, and that the conservation had to become family centric in an essence in a way um, and it was it wasn't uh, a, you know it wasn't it, it wasn't rocket science is one way to put it it was pretty fundamental and pretty obvious uh, which meant that that we had to be thinking about what do families need and they need employment they need clean sources of clean water they they need you know some type of wealth or income uh, it doesn't have to be getting really really rich but then we started looking at the economic development strategies of some of the countries in which we were working and and when you clear tropical forests to sell tropical valuable tropical hardwoods to pay off your national debt or to have uh, set up capital for your nation the fact was that communities were not really the beneficiaries you know they actually had to move because they no longer had the place where they lived uh, because once you did a logging operation you basically had destroyed you know the, the the ability of a family a community that's hunting and gathering uh, that you know to survive um, and so we started thinking about how do you actually secure large territories and then create jobs for communities, um, large, large territories for the protection of nature. And these were areas that had not been explored. So we were pioneering new concepts and new ideas. And, and you know, I've always loved that. I've always loved, you know, looking at the adjacent possible, at, at not just what is common knowledge and common practice, but if you stepped out of what was the practice of the day, were there new ideas that you could design and develop? And, and, and that was just not only looking at economics, it was also looking at science and policy. Um, and that was really what, what I was so curious about. And I found a collection of people from other countries that shared that curiosity and that commitment to actually having results. What I also learned was that the world of the status quo is very suspicious of those people that take a different path. There's an adage that says that the nail that sticks up is the nail that gets hammered down. And, you know, we ran into that in a lot of places. And so you end up, if you're determined and persist, you get thick skinned and you uh, learn that you're not your audience is not necessarily the audience of the establishment, it's the audience of the people that you're working with in these communities and in these 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 nations. You know, that's been the culture that we have built and I wanna emphasize, I have stepped on so many rakes and made so many mistakes, 
but persistence wins out. I mean, you learn every time you make a mistake that that okay, that was really stupid, and and you get better and smarter. And I would say that that's something that that I hope that that anybody who's involved in the conservation of nature, you know, opens their mind to. You know, you you mentioned that you know we have lots of tensions within the conservation movement today, and I've been reading, I always read about this ridiculous you know, tug of war between, you know, are you protecting nature for nature's sake or are you protecting nature for people's sake? It's this whole discussion about the Anthropocene error. And, uh, and, and I would suggest that all of us that are thinking about protecting nature for whatever reason should actually be aligned. The foundation of all human existence is the health of nature. And that there's no justification for thinking that there is any particular species or ecosystem that is not needed. But there are some major gifts that nature provides that we better ensure survive. And that's why we have to focus on the simple idea that humanity needs nature to thrive. Nature is actually going to survive with or without us. We can scar nature to the point where nature extinguishes us and then nature will come back. The question is, will humanity? Yeah, I, I love that perspective. And, and I also really appreciate the advice that you put in there um, about you know learning from failures and not being afraid to try novel approaches or to approach an issue from a way that's completely different than, than uh, you know, what your peers are doing. I want to, you know, I want to take a moment and um, I want to go back to uh, that hotel room where Conservation International was born, and you know, I I just would be curious to hear, I don't, you know, may, like maybe you have a memory of like some of the discussions that took place in that very room, um, or maybe you can just talk, you know, a little bit more generally about, you know, what those first steps were for. Conservation International as a very young organization and as an organization with this uh, sort of foundational mission of, you know, taking a different and, and broader approach towards addressing conservation issues. It was an extremely emotional period. It was, it was, it was gut-wrenching. It was, uh, I mean, we, we did not, I mean, my mission in life was not to create a new organization. Uh, you know, I, I love what I was doing at the Nature Conservancy, and I also love the fact that that uh, I had the room to engage with communities, and that there was an opportunity and an open-mindedness to uh, to uh, to new approaches and ideas. Uh, I I was disheartened when I stepped over the line that they drew in the sand as to you know you could be creative and innovative up to a point and then there's certain you know rules um, or doctrines that we have to stick within um, so so it was not you know we didn't enter that room at the tavern inn with happiness but we had a group of people mainly from south america and from central america um, uh, who believed deeply that conservation could not work in emerging nations if it did not 
focus on the lives of the people that lived in those important ecological places. And we felt that the science to understand which places were important also need needed to evolve. Um, um, because there were so many areas that we wanted to work in where we had no idea what species were there. I mean, what we knew were just the collections along the path of an explorer or a naturalist as they wandered through the Amazon or, you know, some other wild place. And we just knew that we needed a different approach. Um, so it was emotional in that we had wanted this to be within the conservancy. And it's hard to get your heart around that clarity that, okay, it's got to be a different place. So w once we got to that place, and it was a pretty intense gathering in that hotel room, um, uh, we said, okay, let's create a new org. And then, of course, you deal with the reality that you don't have any money. <laughs> you just got an idea. And so it was a leap of faith. And it was a belief that we actually could find the resources, that we could borrow against our houses, we could mortgage our houses, we could we could work out of different homes, um, we could take a run at this. And there was such a deep belief that we were doing the right thing that we decided to stick together and make it work. And and some, you know, I remember one wonderful man, his name is Carlos Ponce, who uh, was a Peruvian ecologist who has since uh, passed away, who listened to all of our conversations as we wrestled with what do we do and said, I've had it. You're taking too much time making this choice. I'm leaving. And as he walked out the door, we said, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Carlos. We're all in. And we made that choice and that decision. You know, we basically clasped hands, drafted a, a mission statement, and uh, and uh, that was it. The next morning, when we got to our offices, they were locked. We couldn't get in, and and we were we were we were ready to go. And 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 that was a tough period because clearly, the Nature Conservancy was not happy with us. I don't blame them for not being happy with us, but they were not. And so we were, we were, you know, we had to be pretty creative and, and, and industrious and, and agile. And that, uh, that was an important part of, of our, 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 our birthing story. Um, we also had to understand that in the world of the major conservation organizations, in New York City and in Washington, D.C., revolution and rebellion was not something that was admired. And so we had to quickly understand that there it wasn't as if someone was going to embrace us. Uh, we were going to have to build our own character and our own resources and our own partnerships. We were really fortunate that there is a man, two men, a man named Murray Gelman, who was the chair of the MacArthur Foundation's Environmental Committee and had won the Nobel Prize in the early 60s for discovering the quark and subatomic particles. And a fellow that worked for the MacArthur Foundation named Dan Martin, who really believed in our approach. And they 
gave us the security and gave us some funding along with three women who gave us some initial funding to prove our ideas. And the first idea we had was the idea that really had come to me when I had been in South America, in Peru, a couple of years earlier on my sabbatical for the Nature Conservancy, which was that you could link economic health with ecological health. And one way to do that was to forgive the debt of emerging nations, which was a terrible burden for them in the late 80s and early 90s, forgive their debt in exchange for conservation agreements. And so we came up with this idea called Debt for Nature, which was, let's buy the debt of emerging nations that had extraordinary ecological wealth. Let's buy their debt at a deeply discounted rate because the world knew that they weren't going to pay their debt back. And we could buy that on the secondary market. And then we could rip it up and go to these countries and say, we're forgiving your debt if you will set up a really important conservation area. Plus, we will work with you to create jobs that do not involve the destruction of these places, but actually empower and employ the communities that live within them. It was called Debt for Nature, and we became obsessed with proving that that could work. And so we started CI that night in the end of January of 1987. And in June, we, I, we announced with the government of Bolivia the first Debt for Nature swap in an area called the Beni province in Bolivia. And then we began to work on how do you create jobs for communities that were not from logging mahogany forests, but were from non-timber forest products, whether it was fruits from a palm tree or ecotourism or whatever we could come up with. And, and we basically got involved in the, in the enterprise business. And, and we had a division that we called Conservation Enterprise. You know, and that's, you know, you start small and some of these ideas became viral and others adopted them and they're generic concepts. And so the mark of our ideas and our success was they spread. They spread to other institutions, other organizations. And, uh, and today, many, many organizations are using these concepts. And, and so, you know, you know, that's really, that's exciting for us and we're pleased with that. Um, you don't own ideas, you share ideas. And, and so we had a sense that we had to be open source and we had to share whatever we learned. And we had to become thick skinned too, because there are a lot of organizations that really didn't want us to succeed. And I basically had counseling sessions every single night with our staff saying, as soon as you throw mud back, you become indistinguishable from the organizations that are criticizing us. So stay centered and open-minded. Don't say anything negative about anybody. Just do the work. And, you know, we got through it. We learned a lot. We made a lot of mistakes. Awesome. Awesome. I, I, I love that. Um, and I, I mean, I love the concept too. I mean, the, the concept of open source and just, you know, gathering information and, you know, the measure of success is whether or not the idea is spread. That's it. I mean, is, is there like one particular example, or maybe, maybe it's not an, an example, maybe it's, it's, it's a moment um, where you realize that this was working, you know, like this concept that we base this whole new organization on um, and risk everything, like 
it works, you know? Um, like, was there, was there a moment when, when, like, that sort of realization took place for you or for, you know, uh, a, a team of folks at Conservation International? Um, and, like, what did, that, what did that look like and what did that feel? When communities and funders like the results and ask for more. And, you know, we picked up on that in the beginning. Um, you know, we made some really important choices. We decided never to do direct mail. We decided we did not want to become a membership organization. We decided we wanted to actually focus on what the quality of the work we did and the benefits that they brought to communities and that we wanted to find people that could support us, that, that we could show them concrete results. And we found that circle of supporters growing where we're out of the ordinary and we're working and we focus a great deal on science. Um, and I visited, for example, with a fellow named Gordon Moore right in the very beginning. And Gordon started a company called Intel and had invented the microchip and created Moore's Law. And he had a passion for fishing. And he sent in a little bit of money. And I went to visit him and he said, do you visit everybody that sends you a hundred bucks? And I said, no, but I visit the ones that came up with Moore's Law uh, and uh, let's, you know, and he ended up joining our board. He ended up chairing our science effort. And we put a lot of effort into, into what we call the Center for Applied Biodiversity Science. How do we actually create an enterprise that only focuses on pragmatic, applicable use of science to guide decision makers, whether it's a community decision maker or a governmental decision maker or a business decision maker, on how do you avoid the unintended impacts that are negative on nature? And how do you measure that? And, and we found that we could actually design and build things like that. We did the same thing with economics. How do you create jobs uh, without destroying nature? Uh, we started focusing on how do you transform corporations so that they understood that employees love working for companies that do the right thing. And, and if a company wants to secure a supply chain of what they're going to sell, you know, they better make sure that supply chain is protected. And so we, we had, we're constantly pushing ourselves to, to understand the complexity of landscapes the complexity in terms of governance and politics and communities and value systems. And how do you get those different segments of a society to share a belief that it is in their enlightened self-interest to secure nature? And, and of course, you know, I'm squishing together, you know, years of mistakes and years of learning um, but that's the path that we were on and we were persistent and we had supporters and friends that stuck with us and that group grew and people ended up giving us significant resources because they trusted us and we didn't break our promises. And I think that, that, um, you know, today CI is a big organization. It's got over a thousand employees and a budget that's about 160 million bucks a year. And it gives a third of its resources to other organizations. So, 
uh, and it shares its data, its science, its knowledge. I mean, it becomes it's become a really important part of the value system of the the organization. You know, that's good. It absolutely is. It absolutely is good. Um, and you know, I want to I want to touch on the uh, uh, the scientific research component of it, right? Because I mean, I think that's uh, certainly a key component. To this mission and, and these goals that, that you're discussing. Um, I mean, you're talking about scientific research that has sort of a very targeted application um, that sort of guides these ongoing conservation efforts, uh, but you're also talking about open source, right, and sharing information. And I mean, there's a lot of criticism of the sort of system of, you know, publishing uh, scientific articles in journals, which only a limited number of people have access to. I mean, I guess I'm just wondering if, like, that is uh, a barrier that you came up against that you, you know, work to address of, like, increasing the access to scientific knowledge and to scientific publications. Well, the Center for Biological Science is really supported deeply by Gordon Moore and by others. Um, we found that it was difficult to come up with the right metrics. Uh, it was challenging when it was just measuring biodiversity, but when we changed our mission to supporting human well-being by protecting nature, it became even more challenging in terms of the metrics for human well-being are complex. Um, we ended up morphing the Center for Applied Biodiversity Science uh, into a, our, the scientific enterprise that exists today, which is called the Moore Center for Ecosystem Science. Uh, in honor of Gordon and Betty Moore, um, and and what we have targeted is the design, the creation of tools that help decision makers. Um, and creating tools requires a deep investigation into um, all the parameters and all aspects of ecosystem health, biodiversity locations of biodiversity, ecological systems, ecosystem services, etc. I mean, it is it is complex. Um, and so uh, it, it became even more complicated when we expanded the organization to put a significant focus on marine systems, not just terrestrial systems. Um, and so uh, it is one of the hallmarks of the organization that science needs to drive policy. And that's why we have never let go of that commitment to science. Um, it is a, it is unusual, I think, for organizations to focus on science. Um, and when we started CI, I felt that one of the vulnerabilities of the environmental movement was a tendency to make up statistics, to exaggerate stories, or to have a story or a, a storyline that we didn't have the data to support. It was gut. Um, and I thought if we were dealing with corporations or dealing with, with, with the governments, we really needed to have a foundation of defensible knowledge um, in our toolkit. And I still feel that way. And that's why CI as a kind of a core competency focuses 
on a full range of science investment and science investigation and has partnerships with universities all over the world. I don't think conservation can work if it doesn't have a strong foundation of investigation and knowledge. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question, but. No, I mean, you have certainly. I mean, I think there's there's maybe just like one small piece of that question um, that you didn't answer, which is it's sort of about like the access that the public has to scientific information that is collected. I mean, most of our communication, most of our knowledge is shared on a web and uh, on the Internet, and they should have access to all that data. The biggest challenge in sharing data and the only challenge that I have found tough to address is that when you start publicizing like the locations of, of untouched population of, of, of fisheries, for example, um, anybody that wants to take those fish gets that data and goes there. So, so there are certain types of information about the locations of ecological resources that uh, you need to be able to have some system of filtering so that you don't accelerate the, the, the harvesting and destruction of really extraordinary ecological assets and, and, uh, and uh, biological diversity. Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, I, you, you absolutely did answer my question. And, and, you know, I mean, I think just sort of what I was getting at there is like, I mean, you say this sort of nonchalantly, like, well, yeah, of course the data is accessible to the people in the community because we just share it online. We share it on our website, right? But, you know, I mean, that uh, that's a resource that, you know, up until quite, quite recently didn't, didn't necessarily exist, right? And, like, not everybody does that. I mean, not every scientific paper that is published is easily accessible, um, you know, online, unless you sub subscribe to, you know, uh, uh, some scientific journal that is, you know, prohibitively expensive for many people, right? Those communities, these are their places, their assets. It, it, it would be inappropriate, it would be immoral not to provide them with all the information that you have so they can make their choices and their decisions. So that's why I think it's, it's, it's an imperative to make available the underlying data and information that you have. Um, so that so the communities and partners can make you know can make the, the the wisest most thoughtful decisions for the benefit of their communities and their you know the, the world of conservation was very different um, at the moment when you founded conservation international in the 80s um, and and I feel like um, there was at least you know definitely some awareness um, that there were these big global, global uh, overarching conservation issues that needed to be dealt with. Um, but we didn't yet understand sort of the scale and the full scope of the threat that an issue like climate change, for example, uh, you know, poses to the planet and to ecosystems all around the globe, right? And it just strikes me that like, we now live in a very different world uh, because we understand that there are these threats that are global. Right, and the decision you make in one small part of the globe impacts everybody, right? Not just that one small area where one individual lives. And you know, I'm just curious about like, you know, how the emergence of these, you know, 
large scale global conservation issues and like climate change specifically, I mean, that's the big one. You know, like how that shifted and influenced the direction of conservation, or even just your approach towards conservation. Mm, let me think. In 1987, uh, in the fall of 87, we drafted a paper called Ecosystem Conservation. And in it, we identified shifting climate, extinctions, population as massive global threats that had to be addressed. Deforestation, income uh, disparity, poverty, as as all needing to be addressed and that the way we manage ecological systems that secured the health of nature and biodiversity was essential part of the was an essential part of the solution so it was our seminal piece that we wrote because it was obvious then that this bullet was coming at humanity um, um, not that many people saw it and and so um, when we would talk to corporations or to individuals, uh, the majority would say, yeah, that's great, but we're focusing on something else. Um, um, today, it's inescapable. Um, and so uh, today, the whole, the whole landscape, the whole um, everything's shifted. Um, every company that's worth its salt is, is, has a sustainability officer or a sustainability department. Every school is teaching about sustainability. You know, every government with a few tragic exceptions are focusing on these issues. Uh, I mean, there are organizations like yours that, that have podcasts. I mean, in other words, this is there's been a transformation that's that's seismic, and 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 I'm and I'm amazed at what's taken place. There are so many young students that are so much more knowledgeable than we ever were when we were their age. They're talking about ideas and concepts that that I'm familiar with today because I spent my life working on it, uh, and I can have a thoughtful conversation about ecosystem services with a 10th grader or a ninth grader. In other words, this is a remarkable moment. And climate change is clearly one of the mega drivers. Um, um, but there are other drivers, extinction rates of species, collapse of global fisheries. When you live in a country like China and you can't breathe the air, drink the water or eat the food, you know, that's just, just that's not an environmental problem. That is a massive socio-political threat. So, so that's what's happened all across the planet. There's not a single country that's not dealing with these issues. Uh, when you're a low-lying nation in the South Pacific, you know when the ocean is more acidic and your coral protection is gone, or your mangroves have been harvested and, and destroyed, and the storm surges are wiping over your country. I mean, it's a issue of survival. That's what we're dealing with across the entire planet. We're dealing with the scale of storms that we're having right now. Um, it is an issue that hits every community. So we are in a moment of accelerated urgency and, and the acceleration is not going to peak, it's gonna continue. And so, so 
uh, you know, that's why I would say that today um, we at CI, joined by many others, have a deep sense of urgency that that we've got to secure nature, that nature is 30% of the climate solution, that we've got to secure the forests that contain carbon and make sure we have this balance of CO2 in the atmosphere and in the earth. We've got to secure biological diversity so we have the ecological resilience to be able to adapt to what's coming down the pike because it's coming down the pike. Um, and that the poor are the most vulnerable and that we need to design systems of governance and accounting that place a true value of nature so that decision makers don't destroy the assets that their people actually need for their well-being and their survival. Uh, so, so this is a, a moment when, when we see that urgency and it is deeply embedded into the character of the organization Conservation International. Uh, the, 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 the Southern Cross for Conservation International is nature's 30% of the climate solution. We need to secure large landscapes and seascapes so that we can show that you can have a thriving economy and at the same time you can have thriving nature. We need to focus on science and innovation. Innovations not just in the science, but innovations in the economics and the way we value nature. I mean, we need to all be all in today. Now, my character, I've always been all in. I mean, I've been driving, pushing hard. I haven't slowed down or stopped. I've really been pushing hard on this. And I'm thrilled to see CI continuing that even as I stepped out as a CEO. The team of people there have the same values and they're driven. And we see a, a world of motivated people that we did not see before and we're hopeful because young people are standing up for what's their right. Um, so that's kind of the way I see it. Yeah, that's fantastic, right? And I mean, I love how you sort of, uh, you know, juxtapose, like if this is a moment of extreme urgency um, and these threats are extremely dire, but at the same time, there is a lot of reason for hope because there is this groundswell of um, uh, motivation, um, you know, to to work to, to to fix these problems, you know, to to address this and to make sure that the world is livable, not just for people, but for all the species that, that live on this planet. Um, so, and, and I mean, that's it. It's also a good sort of transition into, uh, you know, your new project, right? So you, you mentioned right at the, at the beginning of this um, conversation that um, you very recently started a new organization, Nia Taro. Um, I can only assume based on, you know, the stories that you've uh, told us about Conservation International um, that you've got some new, highly innovative uh, and experimental idea about how to... Uh, address conservation issues, and I'm super excited to hear about what it is. I decided to leave CI because the challenges that all of us are dealing with in, in terms of environment are multi-generational. And, uh, you know, having devoted my life to creating an organization 
and searching for the right people with deep knowledge and talent. Um, it was really important that that the organization could flourish um, under new leadership. And so five years uh, ago, um, actually close to six years ago now, I said to the board, it was right when CI was 25, I said in five years I would like to have a team in place that can run the organization uh, because I, it will be the 30th anniversary of CI and and uh, it's clear that the challenges that we have um, require many, many more decades of work. And so I want to put in place a great team to continue the work and not have CI stumble um, because it's been founder-led for its entire life. And so we began a process of searching for uh, the right talent and and. Transitions in leadership, especially in founder-led organizations, are really tricky. Um, uh, if you bring somebody in from the outside, you know they, uh, who has a great track record of being the CEO or leader of another organization, um, they bring in new culture, whatever their culture might be, uh, an expectation of, of being able to redesign and rethink the organization which can be really disruptive. And disruption is not that good if the organization is actually strong and effective. Uh, if an organization is not effective, disruption is actually essential. But CI was strong, and we had a clarity of purpose, and we were gaining traction in terms of showing the relationship between the protection of nature and the health of societies and of humanity. And so we decided that rather than going outside, we needed to go inside. And I thought it would take a number of years to find and train and give the experience and coaching to internal people uh, to be able to take over the role as CEO. Um, and when you hire someone from the inside, you know for sure that you're not hiring somebody who has experience as a CEO because, you know, especially when you're the CEO, you know, you're not, you, so, so you really do need to build up that capability. So five years ago, we began a search. We found some people from the outside. We identified some people on the inside. Uh, we began a coaching effort and a training effort. And, uh, and uh, that's really what led to uh, putting together a troika of leaders. Uh, Sanjan as the CEO, Jennifer Morris as the President and Sebastian Trong as the executive vice president, all with deep knowledge, experience, and friendship with each other and trust in each other to take over the organization. So that was a transition. And uh, and it took about five years to put it all together, but in June of last year, uh, we made the announcements of who was going to lead the organization, and on July 1st, I stepped down as the CEO um, and continued as the chair. Of CI, so it has gone really well. I've been really pleased with with uh, with the way the team has taken on leadership, with the way they've inspired the other leaders in the organization, um, and um, uh, it feels right. It feels really good. In the last year or year and a quarter that I was the CEO, 
I learned uh, with some detail uh, two really important trends and and two bits of knowledge. One was that nature, forests, particularly tropical forests and the peat forests of of uh, the north northern hemisphere and oceans particularly mangroves and salt grasses grasses uh, can absorb and can contain and can resolve about 30% of the climate challenge so nature is 30% of the solution and what i also learned was that a quarter of the earth is still under the stewardship or guardianship of indigenous peoples and that about two-thirds of the critical ecological systems that are really important for the protection of biodiversity, genetic diversity, which is really needed for resilience to climate change, the ability of species and of nature to respond effectively to climate change and to any change, um, that two-thirds of healthy ecosystems are on the territories of indigenous peoples. And when you begin to learn about indigenous peoples, you realize that these are peoples that have demonstrated extraordinary strength against all odds to be able to survive the, the, the invasion, the marginalization, the oppression of modern society. And they have deep, deep wisdom and knowledge and how to connect to, take care of, and and be guardians of their territories. Indigenous peoples do not separate religion, livelihood, culture, and territory as Western society does. They integrate all of them, and they have a sense that humanity belongs to the earth. And and so what sparked the idea in my imagination was when I stepped down from CI, why don't we create an organization that is dedicated entirely to supporting indigenous communities as the leaders of an effort to connect culture and place and to actually elevate the knowledge and the wisdom that these communities have so the rest of the world can be exposed to this wisdom and learn from it. We ended up creating an organization called NIA Tero, N-I-A-T-E-R-O, which in the Esperanto language means our earth. And Esperanto is a language that was created in the late 19th century in Europe by um, a group of academicians and and uh, philanthropists who were trying to create a language that was not the first language of any European country, but would, would become the second language of all countries so that they could communicate with each other and avoid conflict. Obviously, it did not succeed, but it was a it was a inspiring effort, and I've always admired the language, so we named this organization Nia Taro, Our Earth. And we've put together um, 
um, a group of, of uh, funders and partners who felt that this was a really important moment and a great idea to be able to direct um, resources, both financial and uh, technical resources, in support of communities that make collective decisions, indigenous communities that make collective decisions, uh, con control through their guardianship and their history important ecological places, and have um, the determination to secure their culture, uh, their heritage, and their place. Thriving people, thriving places. And that's what we launched. And so that's what we're doing right now. We have... Uh, um, um, the MacArthur Foundation, a uh, foundation called the Mulago Foundation, and a group called the Emerson Collective, uh, which have all come together along with CI as the founding members. Uh, we are chaired by a woman named Vicky Corpus, who is the special rapporteur on... Um, on Indigenous Affairs for the United Nations, uh, and two other Indigenous leaders, one Nainoa Thompson, from, who's a native Hawaiian who rediscovered the wayfinding idea, navigation by stars, that is such a brilliant navigation approach that was developed a thousand years before any European ventured uh, across the Atlantic. Uh, and... Uh, um, and then a woman named Marina Cunningham, who is a mestizo woman, um, who uh, fought Samosa. Vicky Corpus is an Igorot woman from the Philippines who fought Marcos. And so then we have um, board members from each of the other uh, founding members and myself. And that's what we're doing. And we, we're focusing on the South Pacific and on the Amerindian territories and the Guyana Shield to begin and looking at many other initiatives, as well as a second and third effort to build an intellectual platform, a platform of knowledge, so that other communities that want to do what we are talking about and what we are doing uh, will be able to access our experience and, and knowledge uh, and, and technical capability and finance and infrastructure in, in uh, science monitoring and job creation, et cetera. Uh, and then another effort to create a platform for telling the stories and the experiences of these communities. So that's what we're doing, and it's uh, fascinating and important. Um, and uh, we're getting lots of enthusiastic support as we launch. We haven't achieved anything yet, but we're beginning. It, it, it definitely strikes me as uh, a, a really important and innovative concept. I mean, the... The question that comes to the top of my mind, you know, hearing you sort of describe the, uh, you know, the initial goals and intentions and the need for this organization um, is this sort of uh, this this tricky balancing act, right, that that um, I'm sure you and the other folks involved in getting this new organization started were were very aware of, you know, yourself and these foundations that came together um, to create this organization, like in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, you guys don't, I mean, obviously you see the need and the importance of supporting uh, indigenous communities, but none of you guys represent 
indigenous communities directly. You're not, you know, uh, members of indigenous communities. And it, it, it sounds like you guys made a conscious effort to seek out indigenous leaders that could take over control of this idea to a certain extent and, and, and be the leaders of this movement. I mean, I, I guess I just wonder, like, what that process was like and, um, you know, how you guys sort of uh, maneuvered that, that tricky balancing act. I don't think we had to maneuver anything. Um, um, to be supportive of indigenous peoples, uh, one does not have to be um, an indigenous person. Um, to uh, have the understanding and the deep, true experience of an indigenous community, you do have to be an indigenous person. Um, um, so what we decided to do was create an organization that could blend both of those. Um, um, and that's why the chair of the board is uh, a woman that has spent her life fighting oppression is deeply respected across the world as being one of the most important indigenous leaders, uh, is the special rapporteur for the United Nations on indigenous rights, um, um, has been uh, termed a terrorist in her own country in the Philippines because she has called out the present administration for the way they've treated indigenous peoples. And that's why we have Nainoa Thompson, who has inspired the creation of the Pacific Voyaging Society across, across the South Pacific, of of uh, of uh, and rebirthed the concept, the understanding of of celestial, of of the the wayfinding culture, and why we have uh, Myrna Cunningham, who is another powerful person. I mean, it's really fascinating when you enter into this from a perspective of conservation and realize that the partners you're working with are entering it from the perspective of survival. Um, and and uh, uh, you have to be really blind not to understand that there's a difference and you have to then begin to understand and study and uh, and and these different cultures, their diversity, but also their similarities. Um, and what really stands out in all the communities that and the cultures that we've learned about and been exposed to is that they share a belief that they belong to the earth. That's unusual. The rest, the Western society, has a perspective of dominion, control, um, and so. Um, um, and as Nainoa says, we actually are all indigenous to the earth. So um, um, to be inspired by these communities, to understand that this is a very, very important moment for uh, supporting their efforts, learning from them, um, and also providing them with access to knowledge and information and resources. Um, um, is uh, 
uh, it's the right thing to do at the right time. Um, and there is also a unique moment in that the world is aware that climate is having an extraordinarily global impact on all people. And so there is a, a opportunity for, for uh, uh, capturing that interest and concern about the planet's health and saying, okay, let's learn to listen to some communities that actually uh, can, uh, that have an inherent knowledge that that we can learn from and let's support them and follow their lead. And so so uh, we're finding that that is a great opportunity amongst multilateral entities, bilateral agencies, foundations, etc. Um and and our organization will be staffed by a blend of indigenous peoples and non-indigenous. Uh my aspiration is that it will be uh, that I will be able to tr- look. I'm 67 years old. This is, you know, I'm not in this for another 30 years. You know that the leadership that we will be able to turn this over to will be an indigenous leadership, and that we will help to 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 do something that hasn't happened, which is to ensure that really adequate, significant resources are directed at this, um, led by really extraordinarily qualified and committed people. Indigenous and non-Indigenous. We're we're looking to support efforts by Indigenous peoples to secure their own places to support them. Uh, we do not want to build a big staff. I want to limit this organization to thirty people max. Um, but uh, as I said, we have uh, resources so we can do some things. Um, but um, but I think at this moment we should focus on. The South Pacific, where uh, where most of the island nations, and there may be 15 of them, controlling about 10% of the surface of the earth, about 60% of the global tuna population, um, and where these 15 island states are considered small island developing states in terms of World Bank and UN uh, language, but they are actually giant ocean empires. Uh, territorial land is small, ocean territory massive. And all of them are connected because the story goes that uh, there are eight giant canoes, or vacas, V-A-K-A-S, that sailed across the Pacific and inhabited over the course of centuries the South Pacific Islands. And so there's there's a there's a there's a familial connection, a lineage that connects all of these island people. Um, and they all feel that the ocean is what shapes them, it's their life. Um, and so we are working with many of these communities now on thinking through um, how do they secure their territory? Um, because they're not... They do not have coast guards and navies, and and all the fish are being caught principally by international fishing fleets that capture the fish and then take the whole fish, and there's no value-added economy. Uh, all of them are 
to a large extent dependent upon fossil fuel that is shipped in, so they have big costs if they're going to get energy. Um, so there's made there's great opportunities to actually um, um, assist in securing their places, securing their fisheries, increasing the jobs, improving communication systems, and doing this in a way that is a allows them to flourish as a, as societies uh, without destroying the fundamental asset that they all love and depend upon, which is the ocean. We're in the beginning stage of working with those communities, and and uh, the same is true if you go to a different ocean, and that's the ocean of trees in the Guyana Shield, in the forests that are the tropical forests that go from the Brazilian border north. And the watershed from the Brazilian border north flows from the south into the north and drains into the Caribbean. That's the Guyana Shield, um, uh, basically 140 million acres of tropical forest, largely roadless, uh, extraordinary biodiversity, extraordinary carbon sink, um, and mainly inhabited by Amerindian communities uh, who have been there for centuries or maybe even millennia. Um, so, so they are their villages are in essence islands in the middle of an ocean of forest, um, and and um, most of them have uh, real important needs. And so the challenge becomes, and the opportunity becomes, designing shared commitments and agreements uh, where uh, they are benefited by an agreement with Neotero, our organization, uh, in addressing the things that they want to address, whether it's health or education, uh, you know, security, jobs, whatever it might be, um, and 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 uh, and they commit to securing this place that they want to secure their territory, because there is an enormous pressure on these areas. It's not for tuna fishing as it is in. As it, in, as it is in the South Pacific, it's logging and it's mining, massive, you know, gold strikes, uh, timber, uh, resource exploitation, um, because the world looks at their territories as as a resource that's there to be exploited, and and uh, and so it's creating the partnership that allows them to secure and protect their place, their security of their culture and their history and their territory. So all of this is based upon shared agreements. And that's what we we, we work on. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to explain the concept and there is clearly a very strong need um for this and um it's it's hopeful for, for me to hear that you're uh involved in this project and, and you know seeking answers to these really important questions. So thank you for that. Sure. Uh, and this is all over the world. I mean, this is. I mean, this, I talked about two, but there are. There is a emerging, pulsating, enthusiastic, knowledgeable, and experienced group of indigenous peoples that uh, can lead the way. Success in any of these places will be inspiring to others, and it will be the decisions by these communities and their actions that will make the difference. Nothing at all can happen if communities don't decide that this is the right path for themselves. 
to learn more about Peter Seligman and Conservation International, you can find links on the show notes page at wildlandsinc.org slash EOC149. Today's episode was hosted by Matt Podolsky and produced by me, Catherine Dunning. Our theme music is by The Humidors.